the challenge that we've had with big tech is that big tech is a profit-making initiative, often to the detriment of having inclusive conversations about the future of the internet. There is no fiduciary interest in hearing what the internet looks like in Kenya, in India, and whatever, whatever, because standardizing people as much as possible is where the money lies. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. There's something fantastical about the idea of a virtual citizen, where anyone from anywhere can log on to the internet and has the world at their feet, unencumbered by borders. But the reality is that borders aren't that easy to get rid of, even in virtual space. The countries we live in and their political, economic, and social contexts have a massive influence on how we experience the internet and ourselves as actors on it. The intersection of these things of physical borders and virtual space, is a thread that weaves through the work of Nangela Niabola. Nangela is a political analyst, an activist, and a writer. Her two recent books are Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Politics in Kenya, and most recently, Traveling While Black, Essays Inspired by a Life on the Move. She's also turned her attention to tracking the rise of digital authoritarianism, The ways authoritarian regimes try to control the internet might be the most transparent example of how conversations about technology and how to govern it need to be grounded in place. Because as she's written before, tech cannot continue to live in a conceptual bubble away from the reality of human behavior and human history. Here's my conversation with Nangela Niabola. So, like, I, I want to start with going back maybe a decade or so um, to a moment when I think either rightly or wrongly there was a fair amount of attention being paid to the way technologies were um, being used and incentivized in Africa generally, which is problematic. I know just to say that like that, but in Kenya in specific, um, and there was this notion of sort of a silicon savannah and various kinds of tech hubs emerging. And I'm wondering when you reflect back on that moment, why was there that sort of optimism around a new layer of technology being brought to certain people in certain places in certain African countries? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things in there. First of all, I would probably go back a little bit further, right? And go back to 2007, which is 15, 16 years ago. And this massive expansion in the public infrastructure that's necessary to make tech work, right? So investments in fiber optics, the um, breakdown or the, I guess, the breakup of the big telecoms monopoly. So it used to be this big government monopoly that had postal services and mobile and landlines, fixed lines, and all of that stuff. And that was kind of split up into six or seven different agencies. And then from that spun off Safaricom, the mobile company, um, which is still partly owned by the government, but also then becomes this uh, private venture, right? And so I think when you look at that moment, it wasn't just the optimism of this, we're spending money on building the infrastructure that will make tech possible, but is also the political optimism of the moment. So we've just come out of 
24, arguably 30, you know, 35 years of political repression. And there's this sense of optimism and possibility. And so the years between 2002, which was the end of the single party, the, the Moy regime, and to 2007, really represented probably the most politically optimistic, socially optimistic moments in Kenyan history. So it's the confluence of these practical steps that are being taken to make tech possible. And I think what it is, what that optimism that that sort of manifests as is people using the internet to take these chances and to try new ways, new configurations of society, you know, thinking outside the lines that have traditionally characterized the society. Um, I mean, it really was just this confluence of both social context, political context, and also just very practically um, Kenya made very significant infrastructure investments that made all of this possible. Like in so many places, we see the relationship between technology and politics and society being like deeply intertwined. And like, we, we can't just talk about adding technology into the mix. And I, But sometimes it does facilitate, like you said, new forms of experimentation and new forms of speech. And did that happen here? Or would it have, would that opening up have happened anyway, because it was grounded in domestic politics? I mean, I, my personal position is I don't think so. I think it's like a mutually reinforcing cycle. I think that, and it's the same reason why we're now sort of having the negative impacts, if you think globally, of um, political repression sort of reflecting internet repression, but also the internet making new forms of repression possible, right? Totally. It's yeah. not and I, I want to talk totally about that. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We're staying with right? optimism for but, a moment here. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the same in the sense that it's like a mutually reinforcing thing. It's the, the internet does make things possible that were not possible um, offline. So one of the examples that I always give is how feminists in Kenya have used the internet to organize and to articulate discourses that would not otherwise be tolerable in the society because of the state capture of traditional media, because of the dominance of these Victorian moral codes, Puritan codes that reflect the colonial history of the country, right? So if you think about Kenya especially, and this is a really true of a lot of post-colonial societies, you basically have um, three formations of culture sort of always in competition, always in tension with each other. You have the traditional, you know, indigenous cultural codes. You have the colonial cultural codes. And then you have the contemporary ideas of, of community society. And And what you see on the internet in Kenya is sort of how these things are always in tension with each other. And I give the example in the book of feminism because it really, you see this, all of these tensions. Do we do women in Kenya exist in the traditional concept? Which, you know, I'm not one of those people who is all like everything that happened in the past is ideal. I'm, you know, short-sighted, flat-footed. I'm very happy to be living in the modern era. But at the same time, you know, the Victorian code wasn't liberatory for women either. And then you have like the modern sense of things, which is trying to make sense of well, what does it mean to be a Kenyan woman? What does it mean to be an African woman? that modern articulation of African womanhood is not necessarily embraced um, until the digital era sort of makes room for this new discourse and this liberatory discourse where young women, especially, but radical feminists more broadly can say, well, we reject these conceptions of womanhood that sort of make our, our personhood small. And you see this online every day. 
And what the internet makes possible is for this new narrative of Kenyan womanhood, of urban Kenyan womanhood, but Kenyan womanhood more broadly, to find a place in the public sphere, to be articulated on its own terms, to write against some of the latent violence that that comes from both this colonial history and this patriarchal history. And, you know, it's been a, a really tremendous thing to see because now, again, because of that feedback loop, you have these radical feminists being invited to be on television and at the same time working with LGBTQ plus Kenyans in a country where um, homosexual homosexual acts are still punishable by 14 years imprisonment to be able to have out Kenyans on radio, on television, you know, speaking about the political project of um, LGBT rights is something that would have been unfathomable without these spaces to, to define what that means and what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important point. Like speaking of those feedback loops, I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about how the Kenyan government sees the internet both as a tool of modernity and of opening up some political and economic spaces, but also suspicious about just how much has been unleashed, right? And yeah. and how are you seeing that tension play out now? Like, where where is that balance between government's desire for control and the, some of the sort of liberatory elements of the technology? I mean, it persists, right? We always say, well, we want to see some kind of sensible regulation in the digital space. We want to see some kind of penalty for hacking, for abuse, for all of these things. And every time those laws get passed, the very first instance in which those laws are used, it's always against a critic of the state. In fact, one of them was a politician who was launching a bridge somewhere in a rural area. And he was crossing the bridge that had just been launched, million shilling project, and the bridge collapsed and he fell in the water. And they were journalists there and they took the picture and someone tweeted about it. I said, you know, we just spent all of this tax money on this bridge and it collapsed. And the governor at the time, I think he's still governor, threatened to sue, right? Under this new law, which was about abuse online and um, harassment and libelous discourse. Of course, it's not libel, it's journalism. And there are witnesses. But these are the kind of incidents that always come after um, a new legislation that's passed to try and, you know, theoretically enable um, the kind of discourse that's characterized the online space and to sort of create safety and guardrails in this online discourse. But instead, what happens is that it becomes an opportunity to claw back power. And for me, as as a theorist, as a person who theorizes this space, I think that what it represents is this broader tension in the theories of statehood and our ideas of statehood, whereby the internet basically is forcing us to go back to the basics. What do we? What are governments for? Right? Why do we live under governments? It, and and what other ways of existing? What other configurations are possible? And there is a threat in in there to this idea of the securitized state. There is a threat to that idea that you have to be in everything and you have to be know everything about everyone. And and so there is this tension that is playing out in these ways whereby people want the space and the government wants to claim that, hey, we are the country that has all of this space, come and invest. But unwilling to cede the room because it's like, you can't do both. You can't be authoritarian and free at the same time. 
and I want to talk about how that governance conversation has changed. But it seems to me that technology has changed too. And I mean, I'm thinking of like the Cambridge Analytica trials in Kenya. And like, we didn't start talking about it until it was used in the UK and the United States. But like, this stuff was known before and we weren't paying attention. Um, or or uh, many people weren't paying attention. I mean, many people weren't paying attention. I mean, I've heard you say it's in a British company using an American platform to influence a Kenyan election. I right? mean, like, this is a, a globalized thing it's in a, a way. It's a completely globalized thing. And Kenya wasn't even the first. Kenya, we're talking about 2013. Um, India is 2011. You know, we're going back to the second decade of internet uh, of, of, let's say, um, democratized access to the internet, right? In Certainly in Africa. And this was not being done, you know, in incredibly secretively. Um, some of the Cambridge Analytica people had their pictures on their social media. I'm in Kenya, you know, with the Jubilee hat. I'm in Kenya to work on this election. And there was a tolerance for it, certainly in, you know, the diplomatic sort of the political circles, the foreign political circles, only when it becomes a problem in the UK and it becomes a problem in the United States, do we start to see that, hang on a second, and uh, why are we tolerating this? And it's the unspoken, the unspoken principle idea is really the tension that we're seeing also now with the war in Ukraine and all of this stuff is that it's okay if it happens over there. It's not okay if it happens over here. And of course, that's a very problematic approach to governance. And the internet complicates that because now we can see it. Now we, people in, I don't know, Bhutan or, you know, Colombia, whatever, they're online as well. And they see the double standards and they're like, well, why is this tolerable here, but not there? So this is the, these are the two things that I think the internet adds to this conversation. It's what happens when the shroud of secrecy is lifted and these practices of interference, these transnational practices of interference become visible to both you know, government and, and lay audiences all over the world. It complicates the discourse of, you know, action, reaction. And governance, as, you're, as you say, right? I mean, and, and, and look, I think even the, it complicates it much further than even a here versus there narrative, because there are many here's and there are many there's. And it becomes a question of what will the system tolerate before mm. it breaks, Right, it, it be, stops being a Kenya question, it stops being an India question, it becomes a democracy question. It becomes a question of, well, what is the shape of democracy in the digital age? These transnational practices of interference have become so pervasive in the last five, 10 years. And I always assert that if we had taken time to figure out what to do about it when it was outliers, we might have a better game plan than what's happening right now, which is that any country's politics is fair game, right? Reuters reported about uh, what they call coordinated inauthentic behavior, uh, you know, these uh, massive bot networks that basically Russia and France are engaged in some kind of tit-for-tat CIB um, attacks in the Central African Republic. 
So, you know, it's, I mean, and the Central African Republic is an outlier in a land of outliers, right? Even in the African context, it's not a country that a lot of people um, think about, but has been in conflict for the last uh, 10 years, I want to say, a very serious war, and has been a site for all of this experimentation that foreign governments are engaged in a proxy war on the internet. So two foreign governments are engaged in some proxy tit-for-tat engagement on an American platform regarding the politics of the Central African Republic. I mean... Well, you want to hear a crazier example, even crazier example of that. Um, I heard just yesterday that um, the Russian disinformation campaign, because it's been sort of shut out of the mainstream platforms in the global West has now seen a massive increase in targeted advertising and traffic in the global south. So like in Latin America, Russian disinformation is flowing through Facebook, but in the US it's blocked, right? So what does that tell us about global politics and how we view the world from where we sit? There's networks and networks and 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 I I just keep coming back to pay attention to the global south because mm. it is foreshadowing what's coming. Mm. Pay attention because it's an indicator of what comes after this, right? What comes after the situation that we're dealing with right now? Yeah. And the pattern here is really that we, what we're seeing is that allowing these information, misinformation networks to take root in the politics of one country allows them to grow. It's like, it's like, um, oh my gosh, I was going to give an analogy of a cartoon, but I forgot. I got my metaphors mm. mixed up in my head. You, oh, it was Little Shop of Horrors with the, with the <laughs> carnivorous plant. You, know, you keep yeah. feeding it and it's going to yeah. grow. And eventually it's going to you know, eat everyone. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd like to think we don't need to be that instrumental in why we care about <laughs> this, right? Like, I'd like no, to believe that like, maybe we should care because it's in and of itself a bad thing. But I agree with yeah. you. Like The self-interested Western state should also care because it will eventually come back to them. And and I wonder if, it, if that's also true for the much more extreme version of this, which isn't just manipulation or a liberal manipulation of the public sphere, <laughs> um, yeah. but actual authoritarian crackdown on the entirety as well. And I think like that's that's the other big piece of this is the Chinese surveillance state, the Russian surveillance state, the, I mean, Zimbabwe, right? Like, I mean, there yeah. are attempts to go much beyond just using Western platforms to control populations, but actually shutting down the internet or shutting down speech or controlling it. And so how do you view that continuum, I guess, from this kind of softer authoritarianism we're talking about or liberalism to this like much harder form of control? There's a couple of, again, there's a couple of things in there. I mean, I feel like the first thing is what I always tell activists, because I, I give talks to activists about the internet and things like that. I always say to them, you have to remember that power learns and power adapts. So whatever techniques or methods or whatever that we're learning today are enough to keep us one step ahead, but it's not enough to rest. It's not enough to say that now we figured it all out. And, you know, a great example is Uganda. Ugandan opposition has been fantastic at resisting. So this is a 38-year regime um, and military regime, and they've been resisting through protests, through organizing, etc. And um, in the 2016 election, there was a social media shutdown. So not a full internet shutdown, just a social media shutdown um, to prevent opposition activists from mobilizing for protest. 
In 2022, 2021, it was a full-scale internet shutdown for three weeks. And we're seeing the number of internet shutdowns. Right now, India is the internet shutdown capital of the world, um, the longest-running regional shutdown, Kashmir. And it's becoming the practice to switch off the conversation at source because of this belief that Because the governments are learning that the circumvention tools, oh, they have VPNs. Okay, then we have to do this. And then we have to do this and we have to do that. And it's getting more sophisticated, too. Like in India, they're geofencing this really in a targeted way. Like this isn't all of India being shut down. Exactly. Cameroon is the same. Cameroon has only had a long-term shutdown only in one region, the Anglophone region um, of Cameroon. And DRC, I mean, DRC is the second largest country in Africa, and they had a full internet shutdown for, I think, three weeks or two weeks around an election. It's becoming the norm. Uh, Ethiopia, second largest in sub-Saharan Africa by population, does it for exams. Switches off the entire internet just for for national exams. What? And to stop cheating? Like just to, to stop cheating. Somalia also, you know, interferes with the internet around exams to stop well, cheating. Like, my goodness. Yeah. It's because the excuses are becoming flimsier. And the thing is, the impact it, it, where where what seems to be the high watermark right now is in countries. For example, what we think as analysts are paying attention to in Kenya is that there is simply too, the government itself is simply too dependent on the Internet to do a full Internet shutdown. So one of the statistics I give in the book, um, the uh, value of the transactions conducted on mobile money in Kenya in 2017 amounted to the equivalent of one third of the country's GDP. So. You can't. Shut you can't turn that off. Yeah. You can't turn that off. You're basically kneecapping yourself. But the Ugandan shutdown, the three-week shutdown in 2021, one estimate was that it cost the government three billion US for shutting down because it's banking, it's flights, it's mobile money, it's taxes, it's the registers that you use in the supermarkets, you know, to check out your goods. And so there, it's about how much is the how much cost. How much will it cost and how much of that is the government willing to bear? That's gonna, That's the big tension that as analysts we're sort of paying attention to because we've not really seen any large-scale internet shutdowns. We have seen social media shutdowns or throttling at least, but we haven't really seen any big internet shutdowns in countries where the internet is more than just is, – is so much more than, than social media. Having said that, the point that you made about the continuum I think is really important because what you – the other thing is there's going to be new ways of coming to the same outcome. Russia, legislation, just criminalize the speech. And the AI systems, the surveillance systems are becoming way more sophisticated at gathering vast amounts of information, sifting through it, not to mention coupled with the requirements for registration, for, you know, registering devices, registering internet connections and all of that stuff. So the other thing that we're seeing is this criminalization of the speech in the first place, coupled with the surveillance capacity. And that is something that we've seen in Kenya, right? That um, a person can post something about critical about a specific uh, person in government or whatever, and the cops show up at their house, um, which is not in the public domain. And you wonder, how did they find them? Well, remember what I said about the mobile company being owned 30, right now, I think it's 35% of Safaricom, which is dominant in Kenya. It's 90% of the mobile market in the country. The government's a 35% shareholder. So, you know, the surveillance experts, you know, they tell us, Privacy International tells us the government in Kenya didn't even need a warrant. 
if they want to find you, they just sort of take the information. These are the tensions that we're seeing. They're not always going to come through the front door. It's not always just going to be this blunt force shutting down of the internet. It's going to be just as what I said about power adapting, it's going to be different ways of getting the same outcome, which is how do we get these critics out of the internet? Yeah, not much more sophisticated version of authoritarian digital control. is. I mean, some of that was innovated in mainland China. Some of that clearly is being innovated. I use innovated in, in a, in a, in a <laughs> not in a positive context yeah. there, but, like, but also governments are learning about that in clearly in, in various African uh, contexts. But I wonder but what like I the Russian... Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, no, please I want to interrupt because I want to push back on this whole um, China is the big bad wolf in this. Some of the biggest exporters of surveillance tech... Are Western technology companies, obviously. Israel, yeah. Italy, um, you know, and what China does is build the back doors into the tech, right? So Huawei will allow the back doors to happen. But actually, in terms of selling surveillance tech, China is not a big player. The big players of selling surveillance tech are Western countries. It's Yeah, and you're right. Those are two very different strategies, right? Like either you use kind of separate set of tech surveillance technologies or you mainstream them into your platform ecosystem exactly. itself, which is sort of exactly. what Chinese government seems to have done. So you don't need to, to buy the extra tech. At all, because you have it built in, right? It's like, yeah. it, yeah. Comes, it comes with the package. Um, yep. But I do wonder what this says. Like both of those strategies point to a more sophisticated kind of control, social control by a technology. And what we're seeing in Russia seems to be kind of that old model, right? Like this, like they're not using, well, I mean, they're, they might be in some way, but like they're also using this very kind of older first generation shutoff kind of technique yep. right now. And yeah. what does that tell us about their capacity? Is it just not there or is it just not? Uh, it might be a size and scope thing. Mm. It just, you know, again, it comes down to how many people are in the country are connected as a percentage of the population, right? In Uganda, you're still not at 60%. So switching off the internet gets you a much, and especially because most people in many African countries, not even African countries, I'd say even in the global South, use their phones to connect the internet. So you're going to be dependent on different strategies depending on how many people are online, what percentage do they represent of the general population, what are they using the internet for in their day-to-day -day life, what is the government using the internet for in its own uh, governance strategies, and you know what's the cost and how much of it are we willing to absorb. The challenge with Russia is many of the people who were dependent on the internet, so you have a huge volume of people who are online relative to the population. Um, many of them are connecting through computers, uh, not necessarily through their mobile phones. So there's a difference there between what the outcomes might be. But then a lot of them are dependent on American companies, right? They're using YouTube, they're using Facebook, they're using Twitter or Chinese companies in the case of TikTok. So switching off a source becomes a much more, um, uh, if you're authoritarian, your outcomes are coming much faster if you just switch up, right. to use the blunt force. And I think the speed is important because it was an emergency, right? They needed to and shut this speed. thing down now, right? Right now, stop people from protesting, stop all of that stuff. And then it's it's and then it also becomes a tit for tat thing. You know, you put sanctions on us, we we block your companies from making money here. I think where China is different from Russia is that they've from the beginning had this idea of we have to have a sovereign internet. We have to invest in our WeChats and we have to invest in our Alipays and we have to invest in whatever because 
there was this idea of a, of a, of a Chinese internet built into you want, Google, you want to be in China, you have to play by Chinese rules, the great firewall. And I think that's, that's a, a really big difference that Russia didn't really, really is doing it now, but really didn't do it for a long time. And this kind of, if you're an African country, if you're an Asian country, if you're a Latin American country, then you kind of go, well, I, I don't have the money to build, you know, that. And I don't have the clout, can barely make, force them to register as legal entities in my country. I certainly cannot build a great firewall. What, does, what are the options for an authoritarian state that doesn't have the, the clout, the budget to make that kind of oppression sort of manifest? And I think that's why you see these, a lot of these blunt force options. It's just take everybody offline. And, and, you know, absorb that cost because, hey, we're poor anyway. So let's just, let's just, I mean, the number, the number of internet shutdowns, just, I, I, I forget the number right now, but it's growing every year, year on year, year on year, more national, more regional. It's becoming a, an expected electoral outcome in certain countries that the internet will be shut down. So we have to brace for that. Um but I think that those are the factors that would would affect the decision making, and and especially the one that you pointed out. It's an emergency, and we're losing control. Sort of thinking as a Russian state, and we're losing control of the narrative very quickly. We can't do propaganda on platforms that we don't control. So let's let's address that. Yeah, and the Chinese project of building an entire separate infrastructure was a multi-decade. And yeah. tens of billion dollar project with a billion citizens. Like I'm just not sure any other country in the world could do that. I don't like, think I don't... so. I agree. I really agree. I think there was a window to have done it, and I think the window has closed. I think right now we are in a state where the internet as a universal public good, it's become an expected thing in so much of the world that anybody who tries to that approach is going to have to make so much so so many huge investments at scale. You know, in 20 in 2007 when I started the what I call Kenya's digital first digital decade, we had 100,000 people on Twitter. 100,000 people on um Facebook, right? Like that's Nairobi city's 5 million people. That's that nothing. Now we have 12 million WhatsApp users. As of last check, this is 2017, 12 million WhatsApp users, uh, 5 million Facebook users, and grows by a factor of a couple hundred thousand a year, um, 2 million Twitter users. Like, And Kenya is not even the biggest, right? For that, you would have to go over the border to Ethiopia. You would have to go to Nigeria. You'd have to go to South Africa. Um, you couldn't, even if you wanted to at this stage, sort of stem that and say, well, we're going to build this. And 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 from a from a global governance perspective, we don't want that. From a global governance perspective, having 197 sovereign internets is not necessarily a good outcome, right? It undermines one of the things that makes the internet useful to subcultures, which is speaking to people across difference. That you know, a 16-year-old gay Kenyan can message with a 17-year-old gay person in Canada and find community and not feel so isolated. So I'm not a huge fan of 197 sovereign internets playing by different rules. Yes, but as as we've 
talked about and worked on collaboratively, the rules that are being set are often viewed from what the internet looks like in advanced democracies in the global West, not what the internet looks like when you put a layer of politics and economic and social realities in less democratic or even a liberal societies or even less developed, frankly, right? Like the internet's used differently in different places in the world for the very political and social and economic factors you just mentioned. So, Hey man, I'm not saying I have the answer. <laughs> I, well, I, I, I know, I, but yeah. like, but like, so there's a, there's a real disconnect there, right? Like we can't, like we can't have both things at once and it, absolutely. but how do we think about the governance conversation then in a way that respects those differences, but doesn't, succumb to the way they degrade all the good things. Exactly. Exactly. So. I've, I've, I've really just come back to how do we have these conversations? It's about listening and it's about making space for people to be heard and being and seeking out that difference and leaning into it and listening into it. One of the fundamental things that I, I'm reemphasize in talking about the internet, first of all, is that there's a distinction between big tech and the internet, right? And that we have to lean into that distinction. So what we want is an internet as a public good, right? So water isn't administered the same way in Kenya as it is in Uganda, as it is in Ethiopia, as it is in the United States. Different municipalities will have different codes, different whatever, but there is a fundamental agreement that water is necessary for life and should, as far as possible, be administered as a public utility. That's kind of where I think the internet conversation needs to go, is what are the fundamental universal truths, principles that we need to safeguard, regardless of the national, regional context, openness, um, affordability, um, opting in, opting out, you know, reducing the, the misinformation, disinformation, controlling the flow of all of these things. They are fundamental things that we need to agree upon. And I think every society that is aspiring to democracy will agree to those fundamental principles. And so the next stage from that for me is then how do we have those conversations where we can establish those uh, principles? The challenge that we've had with big tech is that big tech is a profit-making initiative, sort of the idea is to make money in the fastest way possible, and often to the detriment of having inclusive conversations about the future of the internet. And so the decisions are taken in DC and they're taken in whatever those companies are headquarters or whatever. And there is no fiduciary interest in hearing what the internet looks like in Kenya, in India, and whatever, whatever, because it's the, the, the standardizing people as much as possible is where the money lies, regardless of the risks. It's, it's about externalizing those costs as or rather, those costs become processed as negative externalities in all these different societies. And the financial side of it is, is it's only the company that benefits. And I feel like it's this logic that we have to invert, right? We begin by separating those two debates and we say, well, the way in which the platform conversation is happening now is too, it's too Western. It's too parochial. It's too profit, profit, profit. But we want to preserve the internet as a as a public good. So for me, the hard question is is making sense of that distinction and 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 sort of working through these two separate questions and not allowing the platforms to dictate the terms of the internet and to tell us, well, 
first do no harm, uh, move fast, break things. Those are our, our principles and we all, that's just the internet and you have to accept it. I think that distinction kind of gets us to start to think about um, respecting national, regional, even municipal, even down to the village distinctions without allowing these sort of powerful companies to set, to set the rules um, of engagement, right? You, rules of engagement, but also the terms of the discourse and what's how it's being talked about. Because I think, yeah, yeah that platforms want to talk about it in one way. And nation states, whether democratic or not, also have a language through which to talk about all and of people. these issues. And people. And users. And, and citizens have a completely different thing. that Their priorities are completely different. And I think you really, you frame those really effectively. Like you just said, like, if we shift it to... How expensive is my internet? How much am I blocked? How fast is it? How much is my speech controlled? How much am I flooded with misinformation and disinformation? How much am I manipulated through advertising? Those are things we all care about, regardless yeah. of the politics we live in. Regardless of the politics we live in. And, and I think that eventually what happens is that it surfaces. This is, this is what was the first half of Kenya's first digital decade. This is what I try to capture. You know, the book... Uh, digital democracy, it's kind of like in in three acts, right? It's the pre-internet discourse, which is about media and Kenyan politics. This this first five years, 2007 through 2013, which are the years of optimism, where we see here are the good things that have happened. Here's women organizing. Here's new forms of community. Here is da 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 And then there's the back half of the decade, which is, well, here's the bad stuff that's happened. And this is why I think the bad stuff has happened. And then the outlying question is, well, how do we preserve the good while getting rid of the bad? And, and I think one of the fundamental things that ha- has to happen is we have to pivot away from the financial interests of the platforms and the survival instinct of the platforms and pivot towards what are the interests of the people? What do people want from their internet? How do they want the internet to, to look like? And I feel like um, another point to, to, to emphasize why this is super important is that platforms die, right? Platforms die all the time. How many times have you checked your MySpace account in the last year? You know, how many times have you checked? I used to have High Five. How many times have you checked your <laughs> High Five account? Mm. Friendster. There's no guarantee that the platforms that we have today will exist in 10 years, in five years. So we have to think about internet governance beyond the platforms that exist today. It's really about what do we want from the internet? And that, I think, reframes the priorities from, you know, let's make sure that Facebook is still solvent. Let's make sure. No, 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 no. Facebook can disappear, but we'll still we'll still be here. And what what kind of internet would we want to have if when that happens? The last thing I want to ask you about is the latest book you've written about traveling and moving around the world as a black African woman. And I wonder what the connections are between that book and this conversation. And I feel like there's a, the part of that was like about physical borders versus virtual worlds and that these things 
these things come in contact with one another. And we think about platforms as, and the internet as virtual, but really borders are imposed on the internet, as we've just heard and just talked about. And it, how do, so how does traveling and moving through the world physically inform your view of the virtual? So there's a couple of things. And actually, this is a fantastic question. I, have, I don't think anyone's ever asked me this question outright before, because for me, obviously, they're connected. But I can see why people from the outside um, might not see how they're connected. The first thing is that Traveling While Black is not a straight up travel memoir. It's really reflections about mobility. Some of them are personal reflections. Some of them are observations, because I used to do a lot of work with refugees and migration. And one of the first obvious things is that when you think of refugee stories, refugee populations are amongst the most experimented on populations in the world especially when it comes to surveillance, especially when it comes to using technology to determine entitlements and to determine citizenship and belonging. The first digital biometric system in Kenya was deployed by UNHCR on refugee populations in Kakuma and in the Dab. And because these are states, people who don't have nationality, it is done outside the reach of national legislation on data protection. And nobody said anything because who's going to speak up for people who have no nationality? And then when we had the Huduma number, which was rolled out on the Kenyan population, then there was some kind of backlash about the exclusionary effects of using data-driven systems to do entitlements, right? Because what happens to people whose data you cannot capture? People who have no fingerprints, people who have you know, no documents and things like that. So the first connection is that it's one thing to say tech experimentation global south, but refugee populations especially are being experimented on with a lot of tech innovations. So that's one, one thread of connection. The other thread of connection is between border politics and tech. The digitalization of borders. Many, so much of our surveillance, um, our biometric data is collected at borders. You know, you have your fingerprint scanned and whatever, iris scans. Like the level of technological experimentation that happens on the borders is also correlated to the conversations that we're having about governance, what the governments want their job to do. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the European case because you see this double standard, and we're talking about it in this moment with Ukraine and the Ukrainian refugees, you see this double standard of how non-white refugees experience the European border and how white refugees are experiencing the border. Racialized borders coupled with violent borders, coupled with data-driven surveillance tech borders, we are already in a human rights catastrophe. But the combination of these things is going to lead us deeper into a, a process whereby there's an unthinkingness to the disaster. It's not inevitable, but it's also an outcome of unthinking. Like it's just like we're not going to grapple with the deeper humanitarian human rights questions of this system that we're building because borders are uncontested places for, for reifying state power, right? We don't question often, not all the time. And so the, these are the connections that I see is that the next conversation. So I've established this racialized border practices and I've established this racialized exclusion policies. The next question is what happens when we put tech in the mix? And I think that's going to be an urgent question. But it feels like tech can both. I mean, just a final thought. It feels like tech can both make those borders more stringent and aggressive and violent. But in some ways, the virtual can 
dissipate borders as well as you've talked about. So but I it guess- depends on who you are, and this is this this is the <laughs> this is the overall point, right? So I talk one of these little anecdotes I give in the book is about um, when I was a student in Geneva. We took the train from Geneva to Vienna um, and back, and we're in this carriage. Um, and the law in Europe is that there are no border border checks, right? You're supposed to be able to travel within the Schengen region. Once you're in and you have your papers, it's fine. So we're in this carriage and there's six of us facing each other, myself, my other African friend, and then four white people from God knows where. And the train guy comes in and outright asks the two of us for our passports, nobody else, and walks out. <laughs> And this is a small experience, but it's a small experience that really stayed with me and really reflects where we're heading. What was the reaction of the other people in the car? I Pretending not to notice. They didn't? Yeah. So there, there was no acknowledgement of it? Yeah. No acknowledgement of it. And my friend and I sort of look at each other and muttering in French, we're like, what the heck is this? But this disparate thing, this, it, of course, of course, it could make border administration easier and more seamless. The problem is, and this is the big point in making digital democracy, tech doesn't happen in a vacuum. Doesn't happen in a political vacuum, doesn't happen in a social vacuum. Whatever the momentum was, if the momentum was for racialized exclusion and double standards, the tech isn't gonna make that magically go away. People have to sit with the uncomfortable questions of what their borders represent, how their borders are administered, and what they want their borders to to look like. And I think sitting with those uncomfortable questions is what you make us do so effectively and thoughtfully. So thank you for talking about it with us. Thank you. That was my conversation with Nangela Niabola. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart with associate producer Abi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week. <laughs>